0: Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia.
1: On episode 37, I interview Paul Eastwood, the CEO and founder of the Pollen Consulting Group. We discuss why he moved from the UK to Australia and how he always knew he wanted to run his own business. How his experience in large management consulting companies and his dislike of the revolving door hiring, pyramid structure, fights for job titles, and turning the best consultants into salespeople that made him want to solve all of these problems in his own management consulting company. We cover the tests he applies to all of his employees how Pollen grew to do over $5 million in annual revenue in just a few short years, and why in the long run his dream is to own a factory. If you are interested in FMCG Management Consulting as a client or as an employee, check out pollenconsultinggroup.com. That's P O L L E N C O N S U L T I N G. G-R-O-U-P dot com. So I'm here with Paul Eastwood, the CEO of the Pollen Consulting Group. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: That's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Pollen Consulting? What did you study? What type of companies or roles did you work in?
2: Yeah, so I'll start. I started university is probably the best place to start because i guess that's the side where i started to think about what i wanted to be when i grew up um and i did business studies and then i went on to do a master's in management consultancy um which kind of probably indicated that i thought management consultancy was where <laughs> i wanted <laughs> to be i think at that time i thought management consultancy was flying around in jets solving everybody's problems and uh, <laughs> an evening, like restaurants not probably what it turned out to be but that was my perception and um, and then I decided, though, that I didn't want to go straight into consultancy. I wanted to go into industry. So I joined a bank, um, which at the time I thought was, again, the cool place to be and where everybody went um, after university. And this was just before the GFC where banks were cool places to be. <laughs> um, what I found when I got into the banking sector, was interesting, actually. I realized I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how it made money because it just had lots of people. And I I got the principles, but it felt they did lots of things and lots of processes, and it just didn't all make sense to me. I couldn't touch or feel what we were doing. Um, And I realized that although I didn't do engineering and I didn't do kind of manufacturing at university, I actually had a real interest in how things were made and put together and and built. And that kind of made me think about my career. and, And very quickly, I decided that banking wasn't quite right for me. And I joined a management consultancy business, which I joined as probably quite a junior person in the team for them. Um, And I stayed there pretty much for a decade. So that was my entire career before joining and before setting up, sorry, uh, Pollen Consulting. And in that, I moved all the way through from being a junior to being a shareholder and partner in that business. That was in the UK. And I learned a lot along the way around consultancy. And I learned a lot at all the different levels in consultancy and, and, you know, the exposure to lots of different businesses, um, lots of different ways of working. And, and probably the biggest thing I took from that is I learned what I didn't want to do um, as much as uh, what I did want to do. And that got me through to be um, a point in saying, hey, it's time to go out on my own and, and do something different.
1: And was what was the of, biggest thing you didn't like? Like you said, your likes and dislikes. What, what part of the role did you really not like and you realized you wanted to move away from that?
2: Yeah, I think there were a number of things that I kind of picked up. I always, you know, I think you learn from your biggest mistakes. And almost I had the ability to learn in somebody else's, um, somebody else's house before I sat on my own, <laughs> um, which was nice. But I think, you know, a lot of it was around the culture. It wasn't necessarily the delivery to the clients or to, to it was the inward facing culture around. I found consultancies have always been very uh, pyramid structured and mm. lots of people, lots of fancy job titles all the way from junior consultants, senior consultants, project managers, project directors, senior associates and lots of people vying for job titles. Mm -hmm. And therefore, with a job title, people think come um, authority, whereas I always kind of looked and said, I didn't really enjoy that part to it, although I seemed to find myself in that race for a while. I actually really found the bit that was the rewarding piece was just solving problems for clients, Mm -hmm. and it didn't really matter what your job title was. So one of the big changes we made and when we set up Pollen was actually to get rid of levels and we just had consultants and that's it. And the other big piece that that kind of came back through to me was in the traditional models of consultancy, as people grow through a consultancy business, they have a responsibility to generate revenue. Mm-hmm. And as they move further up that consultancy business, they have responsibility to generate more revenue. And eventually you generally become salesperson and you stop delivering to clients Mm -hmm. and that was the bit I loved the most about consulting so I kind of moved to a place where I was doing a job I didn't enjoy so the other challenge I had was when we set up the business was that by keeping it flat but also by saying the more senior people we have in the business should just solve the more difficult problems Mm. it shouldn't be that they all are responsible for sales and that's it they should actually be taking on some of the bigger projects and more challenging things for our clients. So that was a big piece of when we set up the business around how we wanted to work. I still wanted to do work with clients and still do do work with clients. Mm. Um, possibly sometimes too much, but um, whilst kind of being a CEO, I suppose. But, um, you know, it's a bit I enjoy. And that's the advantage of setting a business up. You can kind of bring in the pieces that you enjoy and bring in the people that probably enjoy that, Way of working that you have um, in in the business. I think you know we very much have recruited from non consulting backgrounds because people come in with a new don't come in with a preconceived way of working. Um, and the other thing that's always been interesting as well was and um, and I didn't quite realise it until I did it. And you talk about some of the things you change the gender imbalance that existed in and does generally existing consultancy as a broad category is it's generally a male dominated industry. Um, And we in the business I used to work for at one point in it, in its 30 employees had one female. And as we have set up pollen, we've been really conscious of that and we've tried to keep that gender balance as close to 50, 50 as possible. And what it's done is it's actually made us a much better business because it's it's not, it's given us different perspective, but it gives us the balance and, and it's actually something that we're really proud of to keep and, and grow, but it wasn't ever something we, we don't ever put it as our forefront of what we do, but it's actually really helped us and it's really given us a, a balance in the business.
1: Mm. And so just going back a few steps to university. So when I speak to a lot of university students who are very smart, ambitious, they often say, I want to be a management consultant, but I don't know what they do. So they've kind of heard, I guess, the appeal, they hear about the money, like you said, maybe the jets, the travel, the stories, the status, but they don't actually know what a management consultant does. Was was that part of that disconnect for you and how did the idea kind of get into your head and then what was sort of the reality once you start? Oh, I mean, I guess you, you didn't sort of go directly in, but like not looking back now, what was the reality versus what you thought it was when you're a uni student talking about management consulting?
2: Well, my, I was exactly that person that you had that conversation with that said, I want to be a management consultant, but I don't really know what they do. Um, and then I've obviously learned what they do, or I've learned what I think we do. Um, you know, I thought we went in and you'd go in and you'd, you'd come up with these amazing strategies to transform people's businesses and, and you know, you'd, you'd be the hero and then you'd leave and, and everyone would love you forever. I guess that was my view at university. I think as I've come into that world, what I've realized is actually two things really about consultancy. One, the bit about working out what to do and how to find the opportunities and and how to change business is the easy piece Mm -hmm. because generally bright people with common sense can work out how to run things efficiently and effectively and you're not going to be the one coming up with something that no one's ever thought of before. Mm. And the term that people use around consultants giving give, you you know take their watch <laughs> and they'll take your watch and tell you the time. There's a little bit of truth in that. And what I mean by that is, is lots of the ideas are generally there in businesses. It's just bringing people together. And actually what you find is is you're not the one, and I certainly am, we're not the one that's the hero. We like to be the one that facilitates the business to get there and actually see it all come together. But the biggest and hardest challenge is actually bringing people together and Mm. bringing and getting engagement and getting alignment on what to do and actually getting people to be willing and open to change in their business. And actually that becomes the hardest part of a consultant. And I never really considered that when I was at university. I presumed I'd just go in and work out a really cool strategy and, and they'd implement it. Whereas actually, you know, You've got to work out a way of getting the business to actually make them changes in their business and that's the bit that's the most rewarding though um, and that's why i'm still doing it because it's almost like you have all the authority in the world to change the business because you've been brought in as the, as the consultancy to help them but you have no power in mm. terms of you can't just tell somebody do that do that because They don't report to you. They don't work for (laughs) you. You actually have to convince them that there's a better way of doing things and that the way that they've done it for the last 20 years is maybe needs to change. Um, So that's probably the reality of consultancy. The other reality of consultancy is certainly the industries that I work in and we work in manufacturing, Mm -hmm. and I've always wanted to work in a manufacturing space, you don't do the work in the head office that's in Sydney CBD and Mm -hmm. it's actually you go to some very remote places and you go to where the manufacturing is, which is either out West or, you know, in remote towns in, in, in Victoria or New South Wales. And, Mm -hmm. and you, um, you don't stay in big fancy hotels. You stay by the site in the (laughs) the motel. Mm. But again, probably the preconceived version of, of university was that it's, it's a big fancy role, but actually, the the reality of it it's not. Um, but the flip of that is, it's also the um, the best place to be because you're right in the cold face of of seeing things.
1: Yeah, and another debate I'm sure a lot of our sort of thought process, a lot of university students go through is: Do I start in industry like you did, sort of banking, get some experience, then go into consulting? Or do I go straight into consulting and get a lot of experience and then kind of specialize and swap to industry? Having started in industry, do you have any thoughts, like lessons you learned at the bank that were really helpful about how big institutions run or, like you say, trying to figure out how things actually work versus if you had gone straight into consulting?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And you know, my advice to anybody who would be coming into the sector is, I think a balance of both is the right way to go early in your career. I didn't really spend enough time in banking um, or industry. And if I look back and said, well, the regrets I'd have is I did a six-month secondment whilst I was a consultant to run a manufacturing business. And I learned so much in that six months that I wish I'd have known earlier. Mm. Um, I think you probably want to decide where you want to be long-term. But before you get there, don't be afraid of moving between the two. So, you know, if you said you've got 10 years before you really need to make a decision on do I want to stay in industry or do I want to really push down a career path in consultancy to be a partner. Mm. If you had five years industry and five years consultancy, it doesn't matter what order you did them in. Um, I think that's to me the, the the more important. And I didn't get that. And I probably regret not doing that because um, now I have an inkling that at some point in my life I'd like to go back into industry. Mm. Um. But I don't know when that will be. Or if
1: that's <laughs> and then the only other point in sort of your background to help uh, set a bit of context. So, when did you make the move from the UK to Australia and what sort of triggered that move across?
2: Yeah, so I actually came across with my previous uh, consultancy business I worked for. They wanted to set up an Australian operation because they had a number of clients that were international. And so I came out to do that for them about six years ago. And I did that for a couple of years, um, which in, in a way, one, made me fall in love with Australia and the reason why I'm still here. And I actually became an Australian citizen this week. So, um, oh,
1: congratulations.
2: Thank you very much. Um, so I do now feel like Australia's home, but as part of that journey, they probably taught me that I actually knew how to set up a business and gave me the confidence that I could do it myself, whereas previously I probably was scared that I wouldn't have the, I don't know, the ability to do it. I was probably not right. I probably, the, I, I was scared of it being a success or not, but they actually gave me a test bed for two years to do it for them, which then allowed me to build my own confidence to be able to do it for myself. Um, yeah.
1: And was there a was it always a dream to have your own consultancy, your own business, or was there a particular moment, like you said, a bit dissatisfied with the structure, the the different um, pyramidal sort of structure of a lot of professional service firms? Was there a particular moment when you said, "I'm going to do it on my own," "I'm going to do it better," "I'm going to do it different"? Um, that you sort of triggered the start to go out on your own.
2: I think I've always known that at some point I'd wanted to run my own business. Mm-hmm. Um, deep down. And I think, you know, a couple of reasons for knowing that I think I've always tried to do entrepreneurial things on the side, whether that's buying and renovating houses or, or investing. And, and and the was there a specific moment? I think there was a moment that triggered the event that made me decide I could do it. I don't think there was a moment that I didn't think I was ever going to not do it. that makes sense. Mm. So I got to a point where I found I couldn't do what I wanted to do in the business that I was working in anymore, and therefore the only way to really follow what I believed in was to do it myself. Um, But that wasn't a single event that triggered it. It was a number of events over time that built up to probably me having both the confidence and and the inkling to do it at that point.
1: Yeah, and so you mentioned you had a little bit of a sort of test being, a, I guess, an entrepreneur inside a big structure, setting up a new country office. Um, you always wanted to do it. You had this inkling and then finally you do it. And what's the first 12 months like where you haven't got that backing and you're really sort of all in and committed? How was that journey?
2: <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Um, I think it's probably a, a word. It, it was hard work and... Uh, I think one of the things I did first, so I actually took a month in between and I did nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say that really helped me prepare for the first 12 months because what it allowed me to do was to think about it, but also to watch how fast the world was spinning and how fast I'd previously been trying to run. And it gave me a little bit of time just to slow down and think about what I was gonna do for the next 12 months. And then when then 12 months started, I think probably the first twelve months became the first three years very quickly. Mm. Um, I don't. I, I think you know it was a scary moment when you realised that there was no longer a salary payment mm. going into your bank every month. Um, but we brought in some people that to work with me that I knew and had worked with before, mm-hmm. um, and that gave me the confidence in what we were doing. And we were very, I guess, lucky that. We also had some businesses that we had relationships with that wanted us to set up the business, and when we did, gave us that safety net to um, to get up and running. Mm. So if I actually look and say, you know, we've been going for, for we've been going for four years now. Um, the first year was probably one of the easier ones mm. um, because we it was all exciting, it was all new. We weren't running at 100 miles an hour. It was a smaller team than I'd than I'd run before and managed so, and I and all of and all of the people in that team were people that I trusted implicitly.
0: Mm. So
2: it gave us the almost a platform to really push on from. Um, and I think years two, three, and four, uh, I thought it got easier, but it feels like it gets harder. Mm.
1: Um, and as you and- around yeah absolutely and so you've grown um very quickly doing over 3.5 million in revenue and becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in australia so was there a, a point of momentum you hit that sort of drove this growth or was there a different change in strategy um and, and what was that sort of rapid growth like both the, the good and the bad of really getting that momentum and success going
2: yeah that's a good question i think the first piece that really, as I said, that first year we knew what we wanted to do and we only had a small team of, I think we grew to about five people by the end of the first year. Mm-hmm. As we went forward from there, so that was three years ago, we scaled it from five to what is today, 25.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the, um, there was a few points in there that really kind of helped us build on a platform from. Some of them were psychological, so we got ourselves an office um, rather than meeting in cafes and trying to run a business out of uh, coffee shops. That was kind of point one, but the first office we got was a small, you know, seated about six, seven of us, and it was great because it meant we had somewhere and we felt like we were a proper startup, and that was after about a year we did that, and that then gave us this startup energy that we were going to grow and we were going to build. And from that, we then brought and and grew to a team of around about 12, 14, by the end of year two. And at that point, probably that's when the penny dropped on how we scaled beyond that. We always had a plan and we always had a growth objective and where we wanted to get to by year three, which was to be at three million in revenue. Um, Now, what penny dropped was... We'd really sold the business and sold ourselves to clients on people. Mm -hmm. So really, they probably weren't buying for the first two years, Pollen Consulting Group. Mm. They were probably buying Paul Eastwood and they were probably buying Ashley Darley or one of our other employees who they knew. They weren't buying a brand, they were buying people. What we really realized, you know, a big important part of if we were really going to grow and scale, we needed to do was we needed people to buy pollen. Mm -hmm. So who turned up, they trusted the brand and the business. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we probably, we invested a little bit more in our senior team. We brought in some more expertise and we invested ahead of what our probably revenue needed in a capability and what that brought was a lot more confidence i think from the market we then underpinned that quite a lot of marketing which isn't necessarily what a consultancy or a small business should do because we could grow it based on people
0: Mm. but
2: we we spent and tried to do quite a lot on building our brand quite early on Mm -hmm. and them two things together really helped us, I think, over the last two years, really gain scale where people now know who pollen are. Mm. Whereas previously, I think in the industry we work in in, in FMCG and, and manufacturing, people we know people through a network
0: mm-hmm. and
2: people would know us by our name. I think certainly more recently people now know who pollen are. And we now even occasionally have people call us up about work and we don't know them.
0: Mm. And
2: me is is a sign that we've really hit where we wanted to be and we've now got a new platform for growth. Um so I think the the it's interesting you mentioned that we were at three and a half million at the end of last financial because and we grew 10% and actually that's our smallest growing year. And that was the year where we kind of invested. And what's happened over the last 12 months is we're actually probably going to hit five million mm. for the last 12 months, which means we've grown another 30% or so mm. um, in the last year. And that's been a a lot easier than that 10% that you're talking about. Because mm. the 10% that you're talking about, we put a lot of work in for. This last year has kind of been less about us doing the work and more about the Pollen brand doing the work for us and getting us to a point where even through the, the challenging end to the year we've had, we're still going to come out the end of the year significantly further down our growth.
1: Yes, yeah, so, so you've grown from 3.5 million, 5 million with um, a lot of the investment you made last year, sort of paying off this year because you really invested ahead of that growth. And and what were some of the, the challenges? I imagine sort of scaling up the team from a very small team to people you knew. And, and also, again, in, in some sense, you're competing against these bigger brands. Um, not precisely, but for attracting talent. Sometimes people want to work at the big four. And what was the sort of story, the messaging that you said to attract those um, people to a sort of more boutique management consultancy versus a a really big brand name?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, bringing that question back, you've probably hit the nail on the head in answering what one of the hardest challenges of growing small businesses Mm. and it's attracting capable people because in any business, I kind of say, if you've got great people, they'll work out what to do and they'll find a way to put it together.
0: Hmm. Um,
2: we, we've we been very lucky in the talent we've managed to bring in, but it wasn't by coincidence that we did that We or by luck. We we invested a lot in recruitment. So two things we did is we, we continually recruit. We don't hmm. run a one-off recruitment run. And we actually have a policy that we want to keep the tap full and we're going to back ourselves to grow mm. so if they if we're interviewing and there's great people out there and we can secure them bring them in and put the pressure back on us to go and find enough work to make mm. sure we keep people which means we run a little bit more underutilized than we should and that probably therefore hits your bottom line but actually we're trying to grow a business and we're not in it to make quick bucks this year we're in it for a long term of building a great company and if we find people that can help us do that well, then I'll take the hit on bringing them in now and and building. And probably the, the biggest part of the recruitment uh, that we did and we, we put in a, a recruitment process that's probably as equal to some of the bigger companies as how levels you'd go through. So interviews, case studies, questions, mm-hmm. profiling, we kind of matched the big four, which almost made it, people were excited by that level of of challenge to get through, to get, get through the interview stages we found. Once we recruited people and talked to them, they said, well, you guys came across really professionally, and, and it was such a challenge to get into the company, it yeah. almost played to your in favour. Um, and we were worried we'd kind of overdone it. But the big piece that I'd say makes uh, us and we put in place was one of our um, consultants who ran our recruitment for us when we were small we all divided up the tasks mm. between each other and different people to different beats he kind of came up with this motto that it's either a, and, I, and i am i allowed to swear yeah
0: yeah
2: oh, yeah, yeah, yeah okay just checking he said <laughs> either a fuck yeah or it's a fuck now when it comes mm. to recruitment and what he meant by that was he said it's either you would go you would bring in that person because they are the future star of this business or it's a no. Yeah. And there's no middle ground in recruitment. If you've got any inkling that that person isn't right, or we don't recruit them. And we've stuck to that, and it's been difficult because we probably re- run a lot of interviews a lot of the time. But it's really helped us build the team that we have. And you know, we look and say, in our business, we've got 25 people, and all 25 of them, theoretically, could be the next CEO of our business. and. That brings challenges with it because obviously you've got a very highly capable team, mm. but it also means you've got people that are going to grow with the business. And as we scale, we're not worried about scaling. Um, but that policy really kind of hit home with me. And it's not something sometimes you recruit people think, yeah, they'll, they'll meet the need that we have now. Mm. But because we're always recruiting ahead, we don't necessarily have a need. We've got that luxury of being able to say, well, we're we definitely 100% sure.
1: Yeah, and when it is a small team, you, you really can't afford to have anyone who's not quite good, right, and a very large thing where they can parachute in 100 people on a big assignment and they've got, you know, buildings, floors, cities flying back and forth. It sort of if there is a little bit of slack or wastage, it won't sink the business. But for you, if each person sort of 4% of the business, you know, a couple of bad eggs, it will sort of, you know, sink the whole ship, won't it?
2: Yeah, I think you're you, you're exactly right. And but I think if you can take that motto forward, you can always love that motto. You know, we've always said, "Would you leave this person alone in a room with the CEO of your biggest clients? Hmm. And if you trust, then that's how much trust you've got to have in that in that person. And and if you always have that in your business, then you're always going to have great people. Now, the other bit that we're also really conscious of on recruiting and bringing in talent is. People might leave us and go back into industry, hmm. and that's okay. Uh, you know, it's good for their development. It's good for us in the long term. And we've got an alumni of a couple of people that have joined us early on and have left. One of them runs his own startup, um, uh, flying emergency um, medical supplies using a drone into mm-hmm. into remote areas. And the other one moved out to be a CEO of a company in the city. So we kind of look and go. We're pretty proud of them people mm. and what they've gone on to achieve. Um, and, you know, long may that that continue. Um, you asked me as well about some of the other challenges. Probably one of the biggest challenges for me was actually adopting to be a CEO of a bigger business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and not micromanaging and not being involved in all the detail. Mm. And I probably struggled myself not with that uh, totally but a little bit of the time i try and take on too much try and be involved in too much and i'm trying you know and i've got a team now that are very good at telling me to get out of things <laughs> uh whereas before they probably weren't doing that as much um and um i probably got myself stuck in lots of things i didn't need to be involved in mm. um, And that's been a challenge for me personally which It's not slowed us down, but it's probably meant i have worked longer than I needed to work when I had a team that could have done it for me or Mm. done it
1: Yeah, and your business focuses on value chains for retailers, suppliers, producers, and a lot of, I think, regular consumers and everyday people take for granted when things work, um, but they quickly notice when they don't work. And how have some of the recent global sort of supply chain disruptions change your thinking or or even your client's perspective and, like you say, openness to change? Um, and and do new things or adapt?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, we're in the middle of a, uh, and have been in the middle of a global, um, or I'd say a crisis, but Mm. whatever way you want to put it. How's it worked and what does it mean? I think it's probably too early to tell what the long-term implications are for businesses, because generally, most people are fighting the short-term battles of how to get through um, the hearing now and there are noises and I think it will change people's perception and I think the, the areas it's really going to make people think about is is the resilience of their supply chains um, and what I mean by that is, is, is how strong is their supply chain if an event like this was to happen in the future and you know there's lots of businesses that have probably been pulling their hair out but there's probably a few businesses out there that actually were prepared for this And I think, you know, they're the ones that you've seen when you've been in the supermarket and you've been looking for products. They've always been there still Mm -hmm. uh, because they set themselves up really well. I think as we come out of it, there's really, we are likely certainly in Australia, probable, and the rest of the world highly likely or more so, is it's going to be a a recession for a period of time and and it's going to be tough economic conditions. That's going to lead people to think about cost. In their business and I think you know there's a bit of a there's a bit of a saying around um, businesses you know around you don't know who forgot to put their swimmers on until the tide goes out Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's going to apply to supply chains you know wherever you can drive the top line in your business and you can drive revenue businesses will use that to cover up for the exposure of maybe how inefficient they are internally as revenue no longer becomes available as the, as the driving force, you then start to need to look at costs. And so as revenue comes down, your costs become more important. And I think the businesses that have got that in control are the businesses that survive through this, the businesses that don't are the ones that need to really flip their thinking and really look at their internal ways of working and their supply chains and, and the resilience and cost base. Um, and that'll be an interesting point that will really define, I think, who succeeds over the, the next 12 to 18 months. The, the other piece that I think will happen, and coming back to the resilience, is um, people are talking about, both from a you and me, mm. about where's my product manufactured and the localness of it. Mm-hmm. And would I prefer to be buying my tin of beans knowing that it was made in Australia versus China? or another country um and actually if that becomes more important to the consumer it then becomes more important to the manufacturer uh or the reseller and therefore we may see a move to Mm onshoring of manufacturing and i actually think that's a great thing for australia because you know australia does have the ability to um to feed the world so to speak you know it's got land it's got the ability to export food Mm -hmm. um And it's got the ability to manufacture. I think, you know, skills have left and gone and the country needs to work at how they bring them back. But the the bigger challenge they're going to have is how do they manufacture for the same price that you can buy it internationally. And the big driving force that probably drives Australia's cost base is labour. We are quite an expensive labour force Mm -hmm. um, as a country. But that's... You're able to overcome that if you look at automation and technology. So I think rather than onshoring what you've done and already do, the businesses and the, the bit of thinking people need to get to, what we'll get to, is onshoring's right, but I've got to match it with an investment in automation and technology. And if I do that, then I can win on both because I one I I make my supply chain more efficient and and I bring it back. Two, I bring back value to the economy and free i'm also manufacturing it for the same price that i could manufacture in china anyway because i've actually taken out the um the labor costs that potentially were associated by having a higher quality labor operating a higher technology platform
1: yeah, and so it's this interesting tug of war as well, right, because something like Just in Time, which has been a longstanding sort of uh, supply chain thing, right, to sort of how much little, how little inventory can you carry to drive, like you said, efficiency and cost savings, but then balance against the fragility that creates and the lack of resilience when there is a sudden sort of um, shock to the system. So do you see it like maybe a company, and, and like you said, there's this conflict where they may be struggling with uh, lower demand, lower consumption, but then they also want to invest more and in not being um, as easily disrupted by a change. So they have to spend more, but in another way, they're sort of earning more. Or again, like you said, that kind of extra cost of sovereignty versus um, you know maybe people are looking for lower costs, right, and, and sort of balancing that seesaw. Um
2: yeah. And I think, you know, you talk about supply chains being, being lean in the just in time methodology. And what people fail to realize a lot of the time is, if I've got a long supply chain and a complicated supply chain, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean I'm just in time, just because I don't hold much stock through it. Actually, rather than looking at the, the length, you can look at the depth of your supply chain as well. So what do I mean by that? So I could hold less stock, and therefore, I've got a leaner supply chain. But actually, if that stock takes me 16 weeks to replenish it because it's coming from China, then is that just in time or not? Because the other way of looking at it is if I manufacture it locally, I've got a much shorter supply chain. Therefore, I'm a lot more responsive to demand on a, on a lead time basis and mm. can respond to customers. So I think there's a balance between the two where, if I'm if I've got a complicated in supply chain where I'm trying to import to hit lowest cost, am I really taking into account all the costs that exist versus if I buy if I manufacture locally and buy locally? Because I might you know if I'm bringing in internationally, I might be selling sixteen weeks worth of stock,
0: mm. and that
2: costs me sixteen weeks of my revenue. If I'm a hundred million dollar business, you know that's like thirty million in stock.
0: Mm.
2: If I manufacture it locally, I might only need to hold two million. So I've freed up a load of cash that I can invest then in growing my business. Hmm. And I think people don't look at the whole when they look at onshore and they look at it purely as a purchase price versus purchase price, not an end-to-end cost of how I get the best return for my business.
1: And do you think, again, this sort of um, big change recently with everything going on in the crisis will... I mean, I imagine sometimes you role-play scenarios with your clients and they say, oh, well, what's the likelihood of that happening? Or, you know, no, we we don't want to spend on that, like you said, to sort of drive that change. Do you find in the conversations you're having now, given this recent change that has probably shifted a lot of people's thinking of what's possible, good and bad, are clients becoming more open-minded to, hey, here's why I should prepare for this, here's why we need to talk about this, or, or sort of more willing to implement your advice? I think...
2: Again, I'll say it's probably quite early in that journey, but I think businesses are becoming more awake to the fact that they need to consider the whole piece of the – they need to consider all the pieces of the jigsaw and not just one, Um, and they are talking to us about that and therefore um, they are talking about how you understand that more because most businesses, and I'll be probably broad brush here and I'm sure someone will tell me it's not quite right, Most businesses in the whole um, supply chain manufacturing have overcomplicated their business models to the point that they don't understand their own business models. Mm. And actually, a lot of what they need to do is simplify what they do and get back to the basics of what they're trying to achieve as a business. And by doing that, they'd understand their costs a lot more. And one of the pieces we've been working on with lots of businesses recently is, is the ability to actually understand end to end what a change impacts and where it impacts in that business so rather than just going well you know I buy it for a dollar if I buy it in Australia but if I buy it from China it costs me 90 cents therefore I should just buy it in China Mm. actually well, what's the impact and what's the total cost on my entire business of that because I now need people that can manage relationships in China. I've now got a supply chain and I need to put more cash into my supply chain because i have got to buy stuff further ahead and I've got more stock. i have then got to hold the stock and I need a footprint. And actually, if you work out decisions based on their end to end total cost, mm. you'll get to a different decision. And I think businesses are, are waking up to that. Um, but it is complicated because they've got these very complicated businesses where a change, they don't really understand what it makes. Um, and I think that's where technology plays a bigger role. You know, no longer can you model things in Excel and get an answer. You have to use more powerful analytics, more powerful tools to be able to see what the likelihood of impact of changes is going to have.
1: Mm. And so stepping back a bit out of the consulting world more specifically, what, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? You, you've uh, grown up abroad. I'm, I'm sure you, you have some clients which are located in different places. You know, what are Australian business owners, entrepreneurs doing well and, and where could they maybe improve?
2: Ooh, um, so I, I kind of I have a pretty close relationship with a friend who runs a um, startup hub in mm-hmm. in the city, and they're really focused on technology and fintech. And when I talk to, talk to him, it feels like they've got an incredibly good ecosystem that works really well and that gets these businesses connected and that there's a support structure around them. When I look at the support structure that existed when I sell pollen, which isn't necessarily in one of them spaces and it's more a traditional business where I've set up a consultancy business or somebody else who owns a business is setting up their own, I don't know, building company or, or whatever it be. That isn't, there isn't an ecosystem available. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that Australia could do better. Now I don't quite know the answer to that, but it does feel like, um, Certain areas of the entrepreneurial world have got the right things around them and Australia has done a good job. I think the, there isn't necessarily a great job for people who are doing more traditional businesses and there isn't that ecosystem available. And you know, I'm not going to afford and pay for a, a desk in a startup incubator when we don't need a desk in the city. And I think there's probably lots of businesses like me that are sat in different places in the country that don't have a support network around them um that's probably a bad thing
0: Mm.
2: I think from a a positive though you know the Australian attitude has always been give it a go Mm -hmm. and I think that's a a great thing you know I think lots of people do try and set up their own businesses in Australia and, and I think you know the encouragement to do that um exists in the culture of Australia and that works really well um and I also think, you know, to my advice to anybody thinking about setting up their business, the piece that Australia does really well is not necessarily the um, the, the support on startup, but lots of businesses will give smaller businesses a time of day. Mm. So if I go and approach a, a big company that doesn't know us, if I did that in Europe, generally they go, well, "I have no idea who Pollen are." I'm not going to. And then you have to find lots of ways of trying to get a meeting to be able to talk to that person about how, what you could help them with. Mm-hmm. I find in Australia businesses are more willing to give people the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, if I called up a new client and said, "Can we come and talk to you about what we do?" A lot more people would engage with us now. Therefore, that gives us the opportunity to grow and scale. So I think the business community does support startups. Mm-hmm. I just don't. Really, the ecosystem is there to coach and guide and, and have mentors and people that have been there and done it and seen it that you can talk yeah. to. Um, I think that's that's a challenge for Australia. And then the other piece that I think is probably the next challenge that comes is the access to funds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, I went to um, I went over to San Francisco uh, last year and just to kind of have a chat and meet some people and, and it felt like everybody could raise funds and set up their own business and give it a go.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, What I found in Australia is there's not really that kind of funding available. So you've either got to do it off your own savings and spend, or you've got to be lucky and find someone that is willing to back you. I don't think there's enough funding flowing into startups, and particularly even businesses that have started up and want to scale and grow. Mm. Maybe tech and fintech space, that exists but not maybe at the at the lower level. And again, that, I think that comes part of that ecosystem that's missing. Um, part of that ecosystem should be access to to funds.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting because at the moment, obviously, the government's flashing out a lot more funds, sort of the normal, whether some of that will sort of flow down through to, to business. And obviously, they're, they're helping, you know, sort of small business, they're helping uh the unemployed people, they're now helping the housing industry. But whether, like you say, that will... And again, obviously, there's government investment and obviously non-government, private, venture capital, but whether that will sort of, I guess, increase spending and stimulus in this, you know, unusual time, some of that will open up new channels, new avenues for people to um, look for for where to support businesses.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I hope so. So I think obviously, you know, the, the short-term spending they're doing through the, the keep and things is great to keep people um, covered in the short term, but it doesn't necessarily help reinvent the economy because it just keeps people where they are and mm. it's not incentivizing people to really kind of come out of this stronger it's advising people to get through it um and you think you know i, I challenge back and and say i think the next round if there isn't stimulus needs to be around about investing in people that are trying to to grow and grow out of it not necessarily just go back to what they were doing um one of the things i look at is i is R&D tax incentives are actually uh-huh. really good in Australia. Uh-huh.
0: Um,
2: but that, that only covers you if you're developing R&D of an actual product. There's lots of businesses out there, like service businesses, that invest in our product. So we develop our team and our capability, and we go, therefore, to clients with a much better product because we've spent R&D in internally, but actually that's not covered under the R&D tax incentive, So... I think to me, there needs to be a bit of a thinking around how you support businesses that are investing in growth rather than and investing in developing new ways of working that doesn't qualify under what we'd say is a technology or a, a product but still is investment to grow and how you incentivize that piece of the puzzle. Because right now that's not being covered.
1: And so, what potentially in a perfect world might that look like to you? Payroll tax breaks, other tax breaks for new people hired, um, some sort of again other rebates, incentives, low interest loans to fund sort of growth.
2: I think the two. I think the two things to me that you know look one is the the access to potentially loans to grow. So uh, you know, I think through COVID there is there are some more financials available that governments are underwriting, but maybe. Um, some access through that to underwrite some more loans into businesses for growth. Um, I think from then a, um, a how you then stimulate, I, I don't never have liked the idea of just giving everybody a, a discount on on payroll tax and something and expecting them to say you spend it. I think the way R&D works, which you submit a claim for all the investment you've made, um, I think they could run a very similar system on a investment for growth model Mm -hmm. so you can claim back a tax benefit of everything you've put in to scale your business and carry on growing your business providing obviously you can prove that you are scaling and growing your business um you know like so that we get to the end of the the financial year and i'll be you know being very open we've put every penny we've ever earned as a business we put back into our working capital to grow Mm -hmm. so we out we have a few small shareholders and no one's ever taken out a dividend in, in four years mm. because we, we plow it all back in but what we're plowing back in every year is still taxed at 30 percent at the end of the year whereas if there was an incentive that that tax doesn't come out until you stop reinvesting it I think that' be that'd be something that would help businesses scale and grow and, and really drive the entrepreneurial spirit because that'd give me at the end of each year 30 percent more from the previous year's profit to carry on growing. Um, and that would be something that I think would be interesting in the way I would think about that scheme.
1: Mm. And so looking back to your younger self or maybe someone who's 20 right now and listening to this, knowing what you know now about consulting, industry, entrepreneurship, what what advice would you give them? Again, maybe they're 20, they hear consulting's cool, but they don't really know what they want to do. And, and um, yeah, like so we've touched on it a little bit, but what are some tips, again, maybe reflecting on your own life and journey that you would sort of give them to do or not do?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think the first thing I'd say is slow down. And definitely take a gap here. <laughs> um yeah. what I mean by that as well. I think, you know, I was very hungry to get started on my career and I was very motivated by by that. And I think the way I measured myself was always based on how much money I earned. And the first thing I definitely say to myself is, is don't measure yourself on what you earn, measure yourself on what you learn. Mm-hmm. Because seeking experience and broader experience and therefore potentially as well, changing and being willing to change jobs for a broader experience, um, I think would have been a lot more powerful and, and benefited me. Um, so therefore that's one thing I'd definitely say. And then the other thing would be around just slowing down and maybe finding some more um, enjoyment in, in outside of work at times. So that might have been taking a year off because I think, you know, as, as you grow through a business, you get less time to potentially do that. And as families come about, families become important Mm. whilst you're in your first 10 years of your career. Actually, you're pretty flexible. If Mm. you think about um, society now, I mean, I look and go, well, I didn't, I I didn't have a mortgage. Um, I rented. So I was, all my costs were fully flexible, Mm. but yeah, I and therefore whereas but once you grow and you get a family and you've got a family that you got to look after you need to be a bit more serious and probably can't afford to do some things but earlier on you could easily have taken a year off and gone mm. traveling to do something different or taken a, a sideways step into something different to learn something new and I'd say I think the early part of your career and my advice to my early self would be to to explore that more um yeah I think yeah. that's probably my
1: Yeah, excellent. And so looking forward to the future, what does the next five to 10 years look like for Pollen Consulting? Um, do you have particular long-term goals, a vision, a direction? You've mentioned scaling, but anything sort of specifically?
2: Yeah, so when we, when we set up the business, we had a three-year plan, and that three-year plan was to get to 25 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always measured my vision in people. Not in revenue or profit, and partly because you know, I look and say, The one of the visions was I would like as many people to love working in the business as much as I do, and love the culture, and love what we do for our clients as much as I do. And therefore, if you've got that 25 people, you know, everything else will work itself out. Um, and we delivered that, and then we said, Oh, hold on a minute, we don't have a plan going forward, so <laughs> what do we do next? Um, and I think, you know, we, we spent the last kind of maybe six months trying to work through that. And we've actually, we, we have our long-term plan now and we know where we're going. And and our plan now is, is we kind of, we've called it, it's called 25, 125. And we would like to be by the year 2025, we'd like to have a hundred employees, um, who enjoy working for us as much as we enjoy working for the business now. And we'd like to be at 25 million in revenue. Um, and at that point, we would like to be investment ready or sale ready is probably the terminology. And that doesn't mean that we're just suddenly going to all walk away from the business. It means that I'd probably personally like to take some of my chips off the table. Yeah. And I think that's been interesting and I've learned over the years. It feels like someone said to me, you know, how it feel running your own business? And I said, Do you know, when you go to the casino, and I don't go often, but and you've got, you've got a pile of chips in front of you. Imagine that pile of chips keeps growing, but you're never allowed to take it off the table. So <laughs> you now it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and you've got this. But every time you keep having to bet it all, yeah, yeah, feels like that without the ability to ever go. Well, if I just took half of it away, <laughs> I'd be really happy. And I think what I what kind of the the view would be is is that. By the year 2025, I'd like to take some of my chips off the table and potentially go and do something different myself at some point and start to plan for that. But I think the short-term plan is to get to that number first. And it might be we get to that number and I'm still really enjoying what I do. Um, But I have always had a view that at some point in my life, I would like to own a factory. Mm. Um, And I'd like to run a business that's not necessarily a consultancy business now. I don't know when that will be or what that looks like, but that's certainly the, the long, long-term vision for myself. Um, but there's still a long way to go on Pollen's journey first.
1: Yeah, and, and do you see the model staying the same? Fundamentally, like you said, doing sort of the opposite of the pyramidal sort of get the young grad consultants, bit of a revolving door, but pick one in ten to sort of become a manager, one in ten managers to become a principal, one in ten principals to become a partner. So sort of the equivalent structure, and you've really focused on keeping everyone in the engagements and not get, turning them into salespeople, like you said. Do you see, at a certain point, the model shifting towards having other people selling work, having people who don't consult, or, or do you, are you really focus on keeping that model the same that you described earlier?
2: Yeah, our real one of our real objectives is in that twenty-one hundred, tw- sorry, in that twenty-five-one 25 plan, there is a line in there that says keep the organisation as flat as possible. Um, I challenge the team that we have that I would like to keep that completely flat. And I think the logic says at some point you might need to at least put a, a some more, more level into the business if you've got a hundred people. But the vision is, is that you keep it as flat as possible. We keep it entrepreneurial. We keep all the values that we have now and we don't revert back. We actually keep building a new way of working. And I think as we grow, that becomes more of a challenge because it's almost moving into a space where no one's ever done it that way before. Hmm. Um, therefore, we, we we're going to come across more and new challenges on how we get that model working. But I think if if we keep the values the same, the model almost becomes self fulfilling. So if you've got a culture of entrepreneurial in entrepreneurial spirit in your business, and you've got a culture of you no know, hierarchy and and you keep that in the culture, then actually it's the culture that drives the model, not the model driving the culture. Mm. Um, And that's going to be the challenge for us as we get to 100 people, how and making sure that that culture stays the same, therefore the model delivers itself. Um, Because ultimately, if we we didn't get there with that, then I'd start to question, why did I do that in the first place?
1: And would that be, I mean, at that point, a national brand, offices in the major capitals, would that be expanding into another market overseas that you have a particular interest in? Or what would that 100 person sort of vision look like?
2: Yeah. Um, so we we kind of have got two ways that we're going to grow the, the vision to 100 people. So one, we already service the entirety of Australia out of Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably don't see a need to put incremental offices around Australia. We believe that we can run Australia through a single entity, get all the team together, and and build that. Mm-hmm. What what we what we do is we've very much specialised on FMCG and consumer goods as a as an industry, and we've become you know deep and understanding as the experts in that field. I think one option to grow is to expand that field and and launch into new areas. But we've got to have the team capable to do that um, and the expertise capable to that sector. So a couple of areas that we're looking at at the moment are things like more into the retail space um, and how we go into that space. So we can broaden our, our sectors and that helps us grow. The, the The next piece to that is how we then broaden our geographies. And we were already looking at the UK as a expansion because of... We've got a bit of an English heritage sat behind us, um, but that's probably on hold for now. Where we were going to look at into 2021, looking at geographical growth as our next step, we're probably because of the world and the way it changes, we're actually going to bring that to more look at a sector growth mm-hmm. and then geographical growth back a year, and then wait for the world to settle down. So that's kind of the plan going forward.
1: Yeah, and finally, the the, fa- the dream you mentioned sort of have a factory one day, is that to be able to sort of directly put in practice some of your ideas as a bit of a sort of sandbox or is that just a different yeah. vision or interest? Or? A
2: bit of both, really. One, yes, it'd be great to take everything we've done and do it in the real world ourselves. Um, so that, yes. And two, I think it's just uh, driven by a separate feeling that, you know, I'd like to try something different other than consultancy. I've done mm-hmm. consultancy my entire life um, now, and I do love it, but I would like to kind of maybe go into some other areas at some point myself. Now, whether I can still achieve that dream through pollen is something that I've been playing with, and maybe pollen can be the business that owns a factory. I can move and do more in that side, but yet we can apply all the great team and everything to that business, and we should be able to create an incredible business from it that then showcases everything else. So, I think it's a good point and an interesting question. I don't really know yet. I just know there's something in the back of my mind, like I knew I was always going to have my own business. There's something in my back of mind that says I'm always going to want a factory.
1: Okay, excellent. And do you have any final words you'd like to leave the audience with?
2: Ah, oh, no, you kind of put me uh, on the spot there. I think, um, I think you know, if I said you know from my journey as a as a entrepreneur, I'd almost say to everybody, anyone who's thinking about it, if you're thinking about it it's because you should do it, Um, and therefore I'll just get on and do it.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much,
2: Paul. All buddy.
0: Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.